follow me to the book of Leviticus chapter 3. You find that book in your Bible, Old Testament book of Leviticus. I want to share a thought with you tonight that the Lord has blessed me with and I want to devotionalize you with it for a moment. Leviticus chapter 3, looking so forward to hearing Brother Herb in just a moment. Been blessed by the music. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of the services. I won't be able to be here beyond tonight, but I'm certainly delighted to have been a part of what I have been in. I've been blessed of God by the word of God that I heard preached last evening, today at noon. Looking forward to what I'm going to hear in just a moment. The Lord's awfully good to me. He's let me hear some great preachers through the years and some great singers, and I'm grateful for every one of them. Praise God. Leviticus chapter 3, I want to read the first two verses. And if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. This is spoken of the peace offering. If you have a Bible that has headings at the top of the page or the beginning of a chapter, you see that there, peace offerings. It's also spoken in chapter 4 of the sin offering, the same statement made. Eight times by my count, the word of God says, he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering. That's repeated again and again. I've read over that. I don't know how many times I started reading through the Bible in a, detail, in, a, in a disciplined way. When I was in my teens, 15 or 16 years old, I started. So I've read through the Bible all these years again and again, read over the book of Leviticus. I don't know how many times. And this past year, suddenly in, in my reading of Leviticus, that phrase rang in my heart over and again. The Lord says it. He says it in verse 8 again. And then again in verse 13 in this same chapter, he shall lay his hand upon the head of it. Now this must be a big deal. The Lord just keeps emphasizing it. A couple of preliminaries I need to say, all of the blood sacrifices that are detailed in the book of Leviticus are types of the work of Christ on the cross for us. Every little lamb, every bullock that was ever offered through the years of the Old Testament were signs, fingers that were pointing to the great day coming when the Lamb of God with a capital L would come and take away the sin of the world. Not once every year as the high priest had to enter the holy place, but once and forever settling the account between God and sinful men. The Bible says not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The blood of the book of Leviticus is a type, a symbol, a picture of the coming one, the Lamb of God, the blood of the Lord Jesus. Now that leads me to a second thing I need to say up front. The blood of Jesus was shed once and forever. There are no more blood sacrifices to ever be made. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. But there is an ongoing appropriation of the blood of Jesus to the lives of men. For instance, whenever someone gets converted, any individual anywhere in the world, 
When they get born again, the blood of Jesus is applied to their sin account right then and right there. Though the blood was physically shed millennia ago, the application of the blood to that sinner's record takes place at his conversion. Hebrews 12, Brother Mark preached on it today at lunch. We've come to Mount Zion. We've come to the blood of Christ that speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. When I got saved, I came to the blood of Jesus in order to get saved. And furthermore, every time a believer backslides and repents, I believe there's a fresh work of the blood of Jesus in his life. First John chapter 1, the Bible says if we say we haven't sinned, we're just fooled. We're talking stupid. Everybody does, and we ought to have enough sense to know it. But if we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us. There's a, there's a present tense application of the blood of Jesus. The Bible says God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. If we say we walk with God and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us, present tense, cleanseth us from all unrighteousness. Praise God, there's an ongoing work of the blood. It seems evident to me, and I may be overstating the case, and you can correct me afterwards if you do it in kindness. I don't take unkindness well. I, I, it seems evident to me that Jesus, I was thinking about this, Brother Mark, today. I just got to say it. Brother Mark preached that wonderful message from Hebrews chapter 12, and he, he quoted that passage that Hebrews quotes from the book of Exodus concerning what was to happen to animals or people who touched the mount, Mount Sinai, stoned or thrust through years ago. Every time I hear that text, I remember at the conference years ago, a preacher preached from that from the book of Exodus, and my son was in the conference that night and he Samuel my, my son is about he's 6'3 and about 320 pounds or something like that he he's called of God to be a spiritual bouncer I think he said to me after the service he said I found my ministry I'm to be the minister of stoning and thrusting through that's my job in the kingdom of God somebody's got to do it amen bless God so amen I'll volunteer that's my job Lord that guy needs chastising and I want to be your instrument that's what old brother Bill Sturm used to say all of that was an aside. It seems evident to me that Jesus pleads his shed blood on behalf of his erring children when we come to the Father confessing our sin and getting right with him. And that's the basis of our restoration fellowship with God once we've drifted into the darkness of our own self-life. Now, those little preliminaries, having said that, what I want to focus on for the moments I have tonight is the application of this precious blood of Jesus to my life and to my sin issues. The peace offering was about a sinner experiencing not only peace with God, but the peace of God. The peace offering was about getting right. It was about coming clean in confession and repentance over specific sin issues that have come to light in my heart that I know grieve God and break his holy word in his holy heart, which is something that is as relevant to us today as it was to Israel in the days the book of Leviticus was penned. The Old Testament sacrificial system is obsolete, but the spiritual principles revealed in the word of God have a very pointed application to me. And I want to share three things that have stood out to my heart out of this statement. He shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. First of all, the principle of individuality. Individuality. He shall lay his hand. Who is the he in this text? The individual Israelite who knows he needs to get right with God. 
and he's come to the tent of meeting with his sacrifice. In other words, this is not something that someone could do for you. This was not a group offering. This was not a mass surrender. To benefit from the peace offering, one by one, the people of God had to bring their sin issues before the Lord and symbolically lay them on the head of their personal sacrifice. The principle is relevant tonight when it comes to getting right with God, either in the sense of being converted to Christ in the first place or in the sense of a child of God who has backslidden coming back into fellowship with the Lord. In either case, this cannot be done for you by anyone else. It is an individual issue. There must be personal contact. My own hand has to be laid on the head of my offering. And I'm speaking now of the real offering, the true offering, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. As much as your loved ones may care for you and wish that they could make spiritual choices for you, as much as your pastor and the spiritual elders of your church may love you and pray over you and seek to counsel and help you, in the final analysis, no one can lay their hand on the head of the sacrifice for you. You have to put your own hand on his head. There's the wisdom of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 verse 59 says, I thought on my ways and I made haste and turned unto thy word. I thought on whose? My ways. Every one of us have a tendency to think on the ways of others. We don't mind at all scrutinizing other people. We want to judge and jury over the spiritual condition of all around us. And we're always ready and we're able, fully able and willing to confess the sins of our neighbors and our acquaintances. But it's my responsibility to confess and forsake my own sins. And only when I do that will I be able to help anyone else repent and get right with God. The Lord Jesus told us not to worry about removing a speck out of our brother's eye till we get the log pole out of our own eye, correct? The verse of a, that I'm looking at tonight reminds me of a basic Bible principle. It's a fundamental principle that goes throughout the Word of God. Every individual person is responsible for his or her own relationship and fellowship with the Lord. There can be no second-hand salvation. There can be no hand-me-down surrender. It occurred to me one day that the Father, God the Father, is always a father. He is never a grandfather. And that's a big deal. And what I mean is every generation and every individual person has to relate to the Lord for himself and not try to come to him on the spiritual coattails of anyone else. Parents, spouses, pastors, or whatever. The fact that your parents love and serve God does not earn you any brownie points with the Lord. You have to choose to know and obey him for yourself. The Bible says he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering. So the principle of individuality. Secondly, the principle of intimacy. The principle of intimacy. He shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and slaughter it at the door of the tent of meeting. This signifies an intimate connection. For this offering to have any effect, it had to involve personal contact. It had to be up close and personal. You cannot get right with God and have revival in your life without an intimate, individual appropriation and appreciation of the bloodiness of the sacrifice that makes peace with God possible. Can't be done for you while you look on from a safe distance with your arms folded, keeping your hands clean, far removed from the one who's dying on your behalf. You have to put your hand on his head. You have to be close enough to look into his eyes and feel his death is your death. Do you see the importance of this Bible phrase? 
over and again. This couldn't be some cool, calm, detached religious ceremony that Israel was involved in where the individual Israelite sat in the back of the tent and yawned his way to sleep while the sacrifice was being put on the altar. Apathetic detachment had to be replaced with a personal, intimate involvement in the situation. If it didn't, the sin issue would remain unresolved and peace with God would be impossible. To get peace with God for sins committed against him, in other words, for the breaking of his heart and the violating of his covenant to get peace after having done that, for giving place to the great enemy of God, for taking his love and his holiness for granted. If I'm ever going to get peace having done such a thing as that, I have to get intimately involved with the sacrifice. The Bible speaks in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 of the awfulness of sin committed willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth. And scripture describes what that's about like this. It says they treat the blood of the covenant wherewith they were sanctified as an unholy thing. That's the King James translation, an unholy thing. Literally in the original text it says as an everyday ordinary no big deal thing. No big deal. The blood of Jesus is no big deal. You see cold religion Cold religion can look even on the bloody death of Christ on Calvary and shrug its shoulders and yawn itself to sleep and doze away on the pew. Cold religion can do that. But brother, you put your hand on the head of the sacrifice and all of a sudden you realize this is no game I'm playing. This Christianity, this is nothing to take lightly. This, my friend, puts to death cold, apathetic religion and in its place there's a passion that erupts. When I begin to understand up close and personal what it costs God to make a way of reconciliation available to me. When I come to put my hand on his head and I begin to enter into an awareness of the terrible price he paid for me. Then sin is no longer seen as a harmless indulgence. And being genuinely right with God is no longer regarded with complacency and indifference. John chapter 5, Jesus takes this identical principle into the New Testament using slightly different language. You remember this passage where he said, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It blew the minds of those who heard him. And even today, there's a great deal of misunderstanding about it. It doesn't teach any saving power in the Eucharist. It doesn't teach any saving power in communion. It's not that when I take the bread and drink the cup that I'm somehow ingesting Christ literally into my life. When he said, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, he was saying, you're going to have to get up close with me. This is going to have to become an intimate and individual reality in your life. You cannot look at this from a distance and act as if it's just some religious doohickey going on. This is really the difference between game-playing church members and true-hearted lovers of God and disciples of Jesus. You can't put your hand on his head. You can't be intimate with him to the point that you see the extreme lengths to which he was willing to go to save you from yourself and pay your debt of sin. You can't get that close to him, close enough to put your hand on his head without it transforming you from a casual church member and a comfort zone Christian into a red hot all on the altar lover of the lamb. The principle of intimate involvement with the sacrifice, hands-on appreciation of the awful bloody price that God paid for me so that he could give me grace and mercy instead of justice and judgment. Man, when I get close enough to put my hand on him, half-heartedness, cold formality, drowsy indifference cannot long survive in the intimacy of the act of placing my hand on his head. 
So intimacy. And then finally, the principle of identification. He shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. One translation says he's to put his hand on the head of his offering. His offering and put it to death at the door of the tent of meeting. My hand on his head represents the fact that this is my offering. A great substitution is taking place. The death of this sacrifice is by rights the death that I should be dying for my sins. Ezekiel 18 says the soul that sinneth it shall die. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And the fact is the only reason that I can be offered the gift of eternal life is that the Lamb of God assumed the full responsibility for the debt I owed God and he received the wages that I had earned and that I fully deserved. And this great truth is about identification. Laying my hand upon the head of the offering. It's about identification. It's about I and the sacrifice exchanging places. He's becoming me and he's paying the debt of death that I owe God and I'm becoming him benefiting from his innocence and his sinlessness. The sacrifice owes God nothing for himself. He's not sinned. He's not fallen short of the glory of God in any way, but he's taking the place of one who owes God everything right down to the last drop of life's blood. Here's the reality of substitution. His life for mine. He and I are exchanging places. I put my hand on his head and that is my confession, my acknowledgement, his life for mine. I'm identifying with this one who's about to die and I'm benefiting from his innocence. My sin-stained hand placed on his pure head to indicate the fact that I know my hope and my peace rest on the fact that he is willing and able to bear the full brunt of my guilt on my behalf. How would it be possible for someone to toy with sin, to trifle with God, to dabble at religion, and then have to put his hand on the head of an innocent substitute and watch it bleed its life out for him? How could that happen? I submit to you it cannot. That's why God designed the system to work as it does. Put your hand on the price of my peace with God and the peace of God is being paid for me by another. The wages of my sin are being transferred and borne by a substitute. Can I really know that? Can I, can I touch his, his head with my hand and then slouch my way through my Christian life like a spiritual slug? Never really catching fire, never really getting serious about loving God and serving Jesus. I say to you, it's impossible for you to truly put your hand on his head without it revolutionizing your spiritual life. You, you start to understand what the hymn writer was talking about when he said, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I don't need you to give me any pep talk. I don't need you to push my buttons or pump me up. All I have to do is put my hand on his head and reflect for a minute. Just reflect for a minute. Paul said the love of Christ constraineth us. Constraineth means to put the squeeze on. The love of Christ puts a squeeze on me, Paul said. Because I know this, if one died for all, then all were dead. 
And he died for all so that we who live should no longer live unto ourselves, but unto him who loved us and gave himself for us. The Old Testament lamb had no say in the matter, of course, being only a dumb animal. It was selected and placed in the role of substitute for the sinner without having the capacity to give its consent. And being only a mortal creature, its blood couldn't serve a full and final payment for sin. Basis for fellowship between sinners and a holy God, so they had to keep being offered and keep being offered. But our Lamb, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, He is the final payment of all of those, the final fulfillment of all of those types and shadows in the Old Covenant. And He's none other than God in the flesh, the God-man, Jesus Christ. His substitutionary death was not conscripted. He wasn't drafted into this role. Nobody roped Him in the corral and pulled Him in to the altar. He said, no man takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. Jesus said, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. Jesus was the voluntary sacrifice and the eternally sufficient one. Uh, my wife and I this morning just about had camp meeting around this, th this thought that was in my heart and in her heart. She, she quoted this verse that had been in my heart for two or three days. I preached, a, I preached at it Sunday morning for a lick at the church where I'm pastor now. The Bible says Jesus made himself of no reputation. His throne was encircled by the most incredible creatures. Being so dazzlingly beautiful that every time a human being catches a glimpse of them, they fall down to worship. I'm talking about the creatures that circle his throne. And they circle that throne. They circled his throne for eternity past, saying, holy, holy, worshiping him in the beauty of his holiness. And he stepped from that into a barn and was born in a trough. And the, the first sight he saw in his human eyes is he, were some stinking shepherds who'd been spending the night in the field coming to stumble along and try to worship him. He went from the seraphim and the cherubim to those, those, those shepherds coming to say, he's king of the Jews. And then he grew up and began his public ministry to hear people say, who does he think he is? Isn't that the carpenter's son? He grew up to, to reach the point where they put him in Pilate's hall. They drove, a, they drove a crown of thorns down on his head. Men slapped him in the face and mocked him. Who is this one? who did such a thing. He's the one before whom angels bowed. He's the one who occupied the throne of eternity. But he made himself. Nobody forced this on him. He made himself of no reputation. And he took upon him the form of a servant. And being found in the fashion of man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. If I'm going to ever have God do anything in my life, I got to get up close enough to that to put my hand on his head and begin to appreciate what it cost God for me to have the offer of peace today. Sometimes I get in meetings where folks say, let's give the Lord a hand. And that means an applause. I'm not against that. But here's a hand he wants you to give him. Put your hand on his head tonight. Put your hand on his head and see what it does for you. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray this evening you take this simple message in this little portion of Scripture and help us, Father, to grab a hold of the price paid 
Oh God, what you've done for us. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's staggering. The Lamb of God has become the substitute for sinners. And now anyone and everyone is invited to come and put their stinking hands on his head. Our filthy, sin-encrusted hands could be placed on his head and we can be washed as white as snow. God, I pray you'd set us on fire tonight knowing the price paid for us. Jesus, I pray. Amen.